0: So I'll start off just with a, a, a footnote to yesterday's reading. Um, I mentioned uh, in the uh, Sutta to Bahia, there was um, a, uh, some uh, people have a theory that uh, he was, well his, his uh, name means uh, Bahia of the bark um, bark cloth, Bahia Daruchiria means one who's wearing uh, robes made of bark or um, uh, the kind of um, plant fabric fibers and uh, the Brihad Brihadaranyaka Upanishad one of the, the ancient scriptures of India is also closely assa- associated with the same bark-wearing ascetics and um, somebody spotted that there's some particular passages in that Upanishad uh, where it's, uh, it speaks about the un- uh, the unseen seer the un- unheard hearer the un thought, thinker, the uncognized cognizer. There is no other seer but he, no other hearer, etc. This is thyself, the inner controller, the immortal. And then a little bit later it says, um, that imperishable, that, you know, the uh, immortal quality, is the unseen seer, the unheard hearer, the unthought thinker, the uncognized cognizer. Other than that, there is naught that sees, hears, thinks and cognizes. So that, uh, I think that's a very fair point, because it seems to match quite closely to what the, the Buddha says in that discourse to Bahia. So it's, it's uh, one of those pet theories, maybe it's got a substance to it, maybe it hasn't, but uh, it could be that the Buddha is oh, he's one, here's one of those bark-clad uh, yogis, and um, this is one of their favourite um, uh, teachings, and so he spoke uh, to, to Bahia, uh, possibly based on this, um, his famili- the Buddha's familiarity with this same scripture. If you want to look it up, um, the the fellow who actually first told me about this or brought it to my attention was someone called Lee Brazington, who's an American fellow who um, uh, teaches meditation retreats and is quite a, a good Buddhist scholar. Um, and I came up to w- with the reference to it on a, a blog called the Bahia Blog. Interestingly enough. <laughs> Uh, it's put together by somebody called David Reynolds who used to be a monk in, uh, in Burma for uh, a long time and the references from the Upanishad Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad is uh, 3.7.23 for the first one I was taking notes to get the numbers down uh, 3.7.23 and the second quote was from 3.8.11 Okay So, let's go to the next chapter, which is called uh, Chapter 4, All That is Conditioned. This chapter, and the two immediately following it, and uh, those two are... um, uh, Chapter 5 is on Anatta, which is called um, uh, To Be or Not To Be, uh, Is That the Question? To Be or Not To Be, Is That the Question? And then the cha- uh, chapter six is about tamayata, not made of that. So, that those are uh, the next two chapters that are. So, all of these three are like, are like a bundle together, really. Four, five, and six are uh, uh, all related closely to each other. This chapter and the two immediately following it will explore further the qualities of the conditioned realm, dhamma, and the need to relinquish and turn away from it. Firstly, here are some of the Buddha's evaluations of the conditioned world and the habitual experiences of beings enmeshed in it. This passage comes from the Buddha's solitary reflections in the first weeks following his enlightenment. And this comes from the Udana. This world is anguished, afflicted by sense contact. Even what it calls the self is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter what it conceives... The fact is ever other than that. Always becoming something other, the world is held by being, afflicted by being, and yet delights in being. Yet what it relishes brings fear, and what it fears is pain. Now, this holy life is lived to abandon suffering. Well, it's quite a uh, punchy statement, and um, the... uh, when he makes that comment, even what they calls the self, uh, the atta, is in fact unsatisfactory. So that, uh, that would be the understanding, just as say, in, the, in the Vedic um, philosophy, the atman would be considered to be uh, blissful, permanent and, uh, and, to, uh, are, uh, and absolute. So the um, kind of terms, sacchitananda, being, consciousness, bliss, would be the, the qualities of the, the atman. Um, and so the, the Buddha's teaching on anatta, being unsatisfactory, impermanent, and not-self, <laughs> as the nature of all phenomena, um, is going directly uh, counter to that, the, sort of the, the common sort of folk belief uh, and general belief about, about the, uh, of the atman as a sort of permanent, immortal, individual self. And so uh, he makes this comment right early on, just after his enlightenment, even what it calls the self is in fact unsatisfactory. Always becoming other, the world is held by being. And that is bhava, which is also translated as uh, becoming or existence. Held by becoming, afflicted by becoming, and yet delights in becoming. Yet what it relishes brings fear, and what it fears is pain. So the Buddha is looking out over the world and reflecting on the, like, how all beings have, seem to be caught in this uh, compulsive urge to, to become, to be, to exist, to, to have defined... Being, but that very the very thing that they, they they love, the thing they want, the thing that they they're trying to be, is exactly what's causing them uh, uh, suffering and uh, and difficulty. So then uh, <coughs> it was a this sort of uh, um, sorrowful feeling, looking out uh, over the, the nat- uh, over the, the minds of of other beings and thinking that's this is crazy. <laughs> it's like this whole world is addicted to Baba to becoming, and yet what well, it's addicted to, just like if it was addicted to you know, crack, cocaine or to heroin, morphine, that the, well, it, it relishes that, but it's also the, that, that very thing that it relishes is also the source of, of suffering. So like Baba is a sort of uh, drug, psychological drug of, uh, of a kind of universal um, uh, addiction. So also if you can consider the Buddha's sort of looking around, like I'm the, you know, the realizing he's the only non-addict on the planet. <laughs> how do you work? How do you work the uh, the kind of uh, the program to get everyone off the stuff? I'm the only one who's clean. Where do you begin? So, it was also around this time that the Buddha reflected: "This dhamma that I have realized is profound, subtle, to be experienced only by the wise." If I taught the Dhamma, others would not understand me, as it was recounted um, before in Chapter 1. It is sobering that, in seeing the density and complexity of the conditioned realm of mind, matter, and living beings, the newly awakened Buddha considered, at least momentarily, that the task of conveying this ultimate of insights was beyond him. Especially so if one takes into account the myths of the countless births of the Bodhisattva, all leading towards this final life, is a samasambuddha, a fully self-awakened one. All that preparation and then, was it going to be impossible to point out the way to anyone else? So, that, uh, Also that adds extra weight to that, that uh, doubt in the mind of the Buddha, like, there's no point teaching this. After all that preparation, countless lifetimes of, um, of, as a bodhisattva, and then you finally get to the end and think, there's no point trying. <laughs> Beings are too thick, you know, too dense. Fortunately, intervention and imploring by the Brahma god Sahampati caused the Buddha to try teaching, quote, those with but a little dust in their eyes, unquote. and the world inherited these profound and liberating teachings as a result. However, the Buddha's hesitancy is a salutary reflection on the task at hand for those who aspire to the unshakable freedom of the heart. The conditioned realm is a multi-layered, multifaceted, subtle, awesome, colourful, compelling, inspiring, frightening, irritating and generally very convincing with regards to its substantiality, meaning and value. So I also lapsed into a long string of adjectives in the commentary there. The teachings we will look at here are confined to the area which is both most fundamental and most subtle. The unsatisfactoriness inherent in the compounded conditioned, dependent nature of the mental and physical world. This is not because it's the only aspect of the conditioned realm that's worth investigating, but more that it is the root of the issue. If we can understand this essential quality of the conditioned realm and how it functions, and then learn how to break the enchantment, we have fulfilled the first half of the task of liberation. So, the, uh, the first half being uh, so letting go of the condition being the first half, and then uh, realizing the unconditioned being the second half. The following passages come from two eminent contemporary commentators Venerable Bhikkhu Payuto, a Thai monk and author of the encyclopedic commentary, Buddha Dhamma, from which this quotation is taken, and uh, secondly, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His words here are taken from a session of teachings on the Four Noble Truths given at the Barbican in London in 1996. In both instances, the authors have already referred to the first two types of dukkha. So these are are uh, fairly technical analyses, so you have three different kinds of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha-dukkha, the suffering of painful feelings, That's the first type. Uh, second type is viparinama-dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness inherent in the experience of change and then the third type discussed below is the most refined of the three and that's called sankhara dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness of of uh, things being formed or conditioned or compounded. So first of all this is Venerable Payuto um, speaking and this is actually copied from his little book Dependent Origination that I was talking about the other day which is in my opinion, the, the best um, explanation about dependent origination you can get in English. Sankhara dukkata, the suffering which is inherent within all sankhara, all things which arise from determinants, specifically the five khandas. This refers to the subjection of all conditioned things to the contrary forces of birth and dissolution how they are not perfect within themselves but exist only as part of the cause and effect continuum. As such, they are likely to cause suffering, that is, the feeling of suffering, or dukkha-dukkata, whenever there is inflexible craving and clinging to them through ignorance. Avicah-tanha-upadana The most important kind of suffering is the third kind, which describes the nature inherent to all conditions, both physical and mental. Sankhara-dukkata Is a natural attribute. Sorry, (coughs) sankara dukkata as a natural attribute assumes a psychological significance when it's recognised that conditions are incapable of producing any perfect contentment, and as such will cause suffering for anybody who tries to cling to them. So that the very fact that um, any particular experience or any particular mental or 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 physical quality that uh, (coughs) <coughs> that it's incapable of producing uh, a continuous state of contentment, so you can't have any experience that is permanently satisfying. It can be temporarily pleasing, but that um, that pleasure necessarily comes to an end. So uh, uh, people often give examples like, say, um, uh, a, a mother has been separated from her child, uh, The kid's been off at school... Uh, <coughs> uh, and uh, the kid comes back on the train and mom and the, and the child meet on the train platform, hello, hello, good to see you, and then they, they hug each other. So if they hug for, for 10 hours, it would start to get, it would get very, very tiring. If they hug for 10 days, the initial you know mother reunited with child, hooray, happy, 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 of course. But 10 hours, 10 days, or a year, <laughs> a decade, still standing on the platform, you know. Put little kind of fences around them and say, please avoid these. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't, you, you don't have to use your imagination very much to see how even things that are, are, uh, are innocently um, uh, delightful and um, uh, naturally pleasant you know, can't sustain that, that pleasantness forever. The principle of dependent origination shows the interdependence and interrelation of all things. In the form of a continuum. As a continuum, it can be analyzed from a number of different perspectives. He makes a little list. All things are interrelated and interdependent. All things exist in relation to each other. All things exist dependent on determinants. All things have no enduring existence, not even for a moment. All things have no intrinsic entity. All things are without first cause or genesis. So that's his, 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 uh, his uh, list of headings there. So all things are interrelated independent. They exist in relation to each other. They exist dependent on determinants. They have no enduring existence. Uh, they have no intrinsic entity. And they are without first cause. So he, he lists uh, those six particular qualities. To put it another way, The fact that all things appear in their diverse forms of growth and decline shows their true nature to be one of a continuum or process. Being a a continuum shows them to be compounded of numerous determinants. The form of a continuum arises because the various determinants are interrelated. The continuum moves and changes form because the various factors concerned cannot endure, even for a moment. Things cannot endure, even for a moment, because they have no intrinsic entity. Because they have no intrinsic entity, they are entirely dependent on determinants. Because the determinants are interrelated and interdependent, they maintain the form of a continuum. And Being so interrelated and interdependent indicates that they have no first cause. So it's tying all of those six factors together in one, one continuum. <laughs> to render it in a negative form, If things had any intrinsic entity, they would have to possess some stability. If they could be stable, even for a moment, they could not be truly interrelated. If they were not interrelated, they could not be formed into a continuum. If there were no continuum of cause and effect, the workings of nature would be impossible. And if there were some real intrinsic self within that continuum, there could be be no true interdependent cause and effect process continuum of cause and effect which enables all things to exist as they do, can only operate because such things are transient, ephemeral, constantly arising and ceasing and having no intrinsic entity of their own. The property of being transient, ephemeral, arising and ceasing is called anichita. the property of being subject to birth and dissolution, of inherently involving stress and conflict and of being intrinsically imperfect is called dukkha. The quality of avoidance of any real self is called anattata. The principle of dependent origination illustrates these three properties in all things and shows the interrelatedness and interreaction of all things to produce the diverse events in nature. (coughs) So that uh, is one of these passages that takes a few readings. (laughs) He's uh, he's very systematic and thorough but also um, it... uh, uh, it takes a bit of, um, uh, of a sort of repetition to go over a, a few times to, to get the, the different things that he's, uh, he's talking about. But uh, what it's essentially pointing to, and also the, the passage from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, is the very compoundedness of, a, of anything, the, the, uh, the very fact that it's, that it's arisen and, and is, uh, is put together Intrinsically creates an unsatisfactoriness. In a way, it's also just even to use the word "thing" is uh, is a a presumption that. um, And some uh, some languages, notably, don't have nouns. That uh, you can't, you wouldn't say this is a glass or this is a clock. You'd say there is clocking, or there's glassing, or there's tabling, or there's humaning. That you, you, that you only have verbs and adverbs, you don't have nouns and, and, uh, and adjectives. And that, uh, because the understanding is that there aren't really any things, there's just processes, that, uh, and, and a verb is describing a, a, an action or a process. So, uh, uh, in, in rather than sang, a sankhara being you know, translated as a thing, um, you could ra- more accurately translate it, translate it as a doing that there is, there is clocking, there's tabling, there's, there's glassing going on, that it's, and that recognises the, the process nature, uh, the processive... Does that the word exist? Well, it does now, anyway. <laughs> the processive uh, nature of, uh, of experience, and that when we say book, it's, it's an approximation, that these, uh, these particular pieces of paper came from a certain number of trees... So this book was printed, this particular copy, I think, was printed in Malaysia. Yeah, this was printed in Malaysia, so um, <coughs> the, uh, the trees, uh, who knows where they came from? <laughs> Probably from Canada, originally, or Finland, and then got it and put it on a ship, carried down to Malaysia, pulped up into paper. They put, the, uh, put these pages together in Malaysia, put them on a ship, sent them back over here. We call this a copy of the island and this will exist for a certain number of years and then the pages will fall out or there will be a fire and the whole place will burn down and the, uh, the, <coughs> the, the pages will dissolve into, into ash and dust and they'll be blown around the planet, breathed in by various slugs and humans and uh <coughs> absorbed into grass and trees and, uh, and so on. So it's, it's booking at the moment. There is booking. <laughs> And, the, and the, 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 the symbolic shapes of, of black on white the, uh, convey meaning, but it's just—it's a process. It's not a permanent thing. That—that that when we say it's a thing, right there is, is dukkha. That—that that, uh, because then it's oh, don't change. <laughs> That's my book. You know, uh, so that uh, when it's a, a book that you know there's lots of copies of, there's not such a personal attachment to it. When it's your body, your eyes. <laughs> your nervous system, your brain, you think, oh, I can't, I can't remember where I left my shoes. Which, which door did I come in? Mm-hmm. What's her name? I know her so well, what's her name? Mm-hmm. I live in the same place as her. All right, Ajnjitapala, that's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did remember you and I wasn't. <laughs> At the moment I'm not groping for people's names, but uh, it'll happen. So when we recognize that rather than things we're, we, there are more like events then uh, it, it, uh, in a way that reflects the more uh, sort of dharmic perspective. So I'll read the um, passage from the Dalai Lama which is similarly a, a bit intellectual but uh, I, I felt it was worthwhile putting these two uh, passages in because they, they do describe things very well even though it's a bit sort of dry and a bit sort of heady it's, it spells it out this, this um, principle of Sankara Dukkha in a good way, in a clear way. So, this is His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaking, and I think I was actually present for these teachings at the Barbican, if I remember correctly. So, <coughs> 20 years ago. Finally, we come to the third type of suffering, the suffering of conditioning. This addresses the main question why is this the nature of things? The answer is because everything that happens in samsara is due to ignorance. Under the influence or control of ignorance, there is no possibility of a permanent state of happiness. Some kind of trouble, some kind of problem always arises. So long as we remain under the power of ignorance, that is, our fundamental misapprehension or confusion about the nature of things, then then sufferings come one after another, like ripples on water. The third level of suffering, therefore, refers to the bare fact of our unenlightened existence, which is under the influence of this fundamental confusion and of the negative karmas to which confusion gives rise. The reason it's called the suffering of conditioning is because this state of existence serves as the basis not only for painful experiences in this life, but also for the causes and conditions of suffering in the future. Dharmakirti's commentary on the Compendium of Valid Cognition, Pramana Vartika and Aryadeva's 400 verses on the middle way, both offer a useful way of looking at this third level of suffering and help deepen our understanding of it. Both works lay the emphasis on reflecting upon the subtle level of the transient, impermanent nature of reality. It's important to bear in mind that there are two levels of meaning here. One can understand impermanence in terms of how something arises, stays for a while and then disappears. This level of impermanence can be understood quite easily. We should add that on this level, the dissolution of something requires a secondary condition which which acts as a catalyst to destroy its continuity. However, there is also a second, more subtle understanding of transience. From this more subtle perspective, The obvious process of change we've just described is merely the effect of a deeper, underlying and dynamic process of change. At a deeper level, everything is changing from moment to moment, constantly. This process of momentary change is not due to a secondary condition that arises to destroy something, but rather the very cause that led to a thing to arise is also the cause of its destruction. In other words, within the cause of its origin lies the cause of its cessation. So you can say a, a, a simple representation of that that uh, Lumbosometa would uh, would say is the cause of death is not cancer or heart disease or a car crash. The cause of death death is birth. That's we we die because we're born. that's the in the the very fact of a birth means there's going to be a death. But, uh, you can't get the one without the other. Momentariness. Thus, uh, sorry, momentariness should thus be understood in two ways. First, in terms of the three moments of existence of any entity. In the first instance, it arises. In the second instant, it stays. In the third instant, it dissolves. Second, in terms of each instant itself. An instant is not static. As soon as it arises, it moves towards its own cessation. Since everything arises complete from the outset, the birth of things comes together with the seed or potential for their dissolution. In this respect, one could say that their cessation does not depend on any secondary further condition. So like the the clock, the cessation of this clock doesn't depend on the fact that somebody might drop it or its, uh, it's, um, <coughs> it's, um, uh, it's uh, constituent parts, the glue holding it together is going to fall apart in 10 years' time, but rather... Um, it's not just those secondary factors that cause it to to be impermanent, but also the very fact that it's made up of of, uh, intrinsically impermanent parts in the first place. So since everything arises complete from the outset, the birth of things comes together with the seed or potential for their dissolution. In this respect, one could say that their cessation does not depend on any secondary further condition. Therefore, in Buddhism, all phenomena are said to be, quote, other-powered, unquote. That is, they are under the control of their causes. <coughs> Once you have developed this understanding of the transient nature of phenomena, you are able to situate the understanding you have of dukkha within that context and reflect upon your life as an individual in the samsaric world. You know that since the world has come into being as a result of its own causes and conditions, it too must be other-powered, in other words, it must be under the, under the control of the causal processes that led to its arising. However, in the context of samsara, the causes that we are referring to here are nothing other than our fundamental confusion or ignorance, rigpa in Tibetan, and the delusory states to which confusion gives rise. We know that so long as we are under the domination of this fundamental confusion, there is no room for lasting joy or happiness. Of course, Within the three realms, there are states which are comparatively more joyful than others. However, so long as we remain within samsara, whether in the form realm, the formless realm, or the desire realm, there is no scope for joy to be lasting. In the final analysis, we are in a state of dukkha. This is the meaning of the third type of suffering. (coughs) So to to make that a little bit more simple, it's like we, we um, (coughs) we assume things are are supposed to be there. So An example I often give is, is a very early insight I had into this was in the, the sewing room at Wat Pananashat back in about 1978 when I was a novice. So there was a, a Thai monk who was staying with us and uh, he was trying to get the, 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 um, the plate on the, the foot of the sewing machine to, um, to get unstuck, it was, it was uh, one of those old singer treadle sewing machines and the little plate where the, um, the 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 bobbin goes in the uh, in the, uh, the the lower part of the sewing machine, the the screw was was very very tight, and he was uh, working on this with this the screwdriver, and you know how it is when you're watching someone you, uh, on a particular job and you kind of get focused in on the the activity, and so I was sort of paying attention as he's uh, he's trying to get the you know, the the uh, the screwdriver carefully into the the head of the screw and it's sort of leaning on it and turning it. And, is the screw going to turn? Is it, is it turning? Is it going to turn? Is it going to turn? And, and suddenly, poof! The screwdriver broke. And so my mind immediately said, Damn! And he said, Aniccio! <laughs> 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 so there was this sort of epiphany, not kind of exactly an epiphany, but it was a moment of insight. Like my, my, my mind saw that screwdriver failed. It was a screwdriver, and now it's broken. He saw there is screwdrivering. There was screwdrivering happening, <laughs> and now there is no longer screwdrivering happening. <laughs> this is going to be repurposed for something else. But uh, and it was—it was uh, had quite an impact on me, because it was like, oh, right. <laughs> he knew that, that, that this is a tool at the moment that's useful for screws, but it might not be for forever. And, that, and it was instantaneous. Oh, each you know, His mind was ready to see that the screwdriver was... Impermanent and w- was going to be was in a, already in a state of change. Another simple way, like the reflection I was giving this morning about the the kind of teachings Ajahn Chah would uh, would give, uh, a way of processing our own judgments and opinions, um, and uh, to develop this uh, what you call the anicca sanya, or the perception of, of uncertainty or, or impermanence. Uh, <coughs> He uh, he would encourage just asking the question: you know, Is that so, Jingler? Yeah, is that is that a fact, yeah. Manbo? Yeah, so that you are when you say, "Oh, that's great." Oh, is that so? That's awful. Is that so? Oh, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Ubon tomorrow. Is that so? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I've I've decided from now on I'm just, just going to eat um, the food I get on the arms round. Is that so? <laughs> that. Uh, you are, just in a simple reflection like that uh, then you're expanding the view to recognize well that's an intention, or that's a judgment, but it's only that. It's just your mind seeing a situation and assessing it and calling it good, calling it bad, calling it calling, uh, you know, something by a particular name. That's all. And just in that simple way of picking it up and thinking, is that so? Then it's that, that, touching into that, that wisdom that says, that's not the whole story. It's a screwdriver at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm using a screwdriver to, to fix the sewing machine. Is that so? <laughs> uh, and so that even though this can seem a little bit abstruse, uh, talking about the sort of the, inherent, the, the nature of inherent instability or the, the, when that thing was, the plastic and the metal were put together and called screwdriver.' You know, made in Thailand, even though in Thailand they're often have made in Germany or made in <laughs> Made in the U.K., uh, written on the side. That, uh, that Again, uh, that um, I had uh, um, uh, other novices there, and they'd, they'd see Made in Germany, and they'd say, Made in Thailand. Because <laughs> <laughs> Thailand specializes in uh, fake uh, products. <laughs> Real fake products. <laughs> so if you want to have a, a, a very cheap Louis Vuitton handbag or a, a um, Rolex watch, then... Thailand is the place to get those. <laughs> so uh, that, uh, even though this might this sort of uh, you know, might sound a bit sort of heady and and abstruse, like reflecting on sankara sankara dukkha, it's that that kind of reflection is a direct um, uh, access to that, just to remember, or that or the other even the, the even more simple reflection, so, <laughs> where that. The mind is saying, well. I'm going to. Uh, uh, I'm going to do this, uh, or um, uh, this is this is what I feel. And the mind makes this kind of definition. It it, it sort of it, it takes refuge in having uh, something fixed. Uh, <coughs> that uh, um, I'm feeling good, so I'm feeling awful, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, the uh, I'm uh, I'm giving readings from the the island, so. <laughs> Some people are understanding. Some people are not understanding. So, <laughs> and that the uh, the way the mind latches on to a, a perception or a feeling or a thought or a mood, and in, in, in that very def- definition, that definingness—again, if that word exists—it's <laughs> that, like that's where, that's in a way that's that's a process of becoming. The mind says, "This is what's happening, and this is it," and that very. Um, uh, def- defining and and determining of that thing uh <coughs> is a state of dukkha it's it's like a, a, that's a, a subtle kind of dukkha and then a, a, that simple reflection of so that well uh, and that means what or or that has some particular value or is that what well, what's the mind making of that and at least when i apply this this kind of reflection like what happens is oh <laughs> there's this suddenly the world gets a little bigger, there's more, uh, a greater quality of spaciousness. So even though this minds might, might sound a little ob- abstruse, that when the, these, these teachings are applied and that quality of Sankara dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of things is, is um, really uh, appreciated and, and, and accessed most easily through this uh, developing of the Anicca Sanya, then it has a direct impact on the way that the the heart feels in relationship to the world. So we now move back to the Pali Canon. The following passages clearly demonstrate both the power of reflective wisdom in the process of liberation and the need for turning away from fixation on the conditioned realm if the truth is to be realized and the heart released. So this first passage is from a sutta in the middle-length discourses called the Man from Attakanagara, sutta number 52. And I think this is, Venerable, yeah, this is Venerable Ananda who is speaking. Here, householder, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. He considers that and understands it thus, quote, this first jhana is conditioned and volitionally produced but whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. Unquote. Standing upon that, he attains the destruction of the asavas, the mental outflows. But if he does not attain the destruction of the asavas, then because of that desire for the Dhamma, that uh, Dhamma chanda, that delight in the Dhamma, it's called Dhamma nandiya, uh, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes one due to reappear spontaneously in the pure abodes, there to attain final nibbana without ever returning from that world. So, this is a good example of um, the interplay of insight. And reflective wisdom and concentration, and this particular sutta. And so uh, the mind is, uh, say, uh, absorbed in first jhana, but there's this uh, reflective wisdom that, that then observes that, that state and considers this is first jhana, very good, but this is conditioned and volitionally produced, this is something that's formed, it's an dukkha anatta. Whatever is conditioned is impermanent and subject to cessation. And then in this um, description, the Venerable Ananda says, then standing upon that, or that, that insight being clarified and established, realized, then that person that attains the destruction of the asavas, that reaches total enlightenment. Or if not total enlightenment, then because of the, um, the desire for the Dhamma, the. Um, uh, I think yeah, that's actually that's Dhamma raga, actually. Uh, Dhamma raga. And delight in the Dhamma, Dhamma nandiya, getting so excited. This is great, this is fantastic. Even though it's a wholesome state, that, that kind of getting excited about Dhamma creates a, a, a degree of obstruction so that the mind only reaches the state of the non-returner rather than arahatship. This passage is then repeated with reference to, firstly, the other three rupa jhanas, so second, third, and fourth jhana, then the four brahma-viharas, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. And also the first three of the arupajanas, the formless states of, of absorption. The fourth of these, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, and the state of Samapati, So it's the the fourth, the, the kind of two highest or most subtle states of absorption. That's the uh, the fourth arupajana, and then the state of samapati, which is called the cessation of perception and feeling. They are not mentioned here in the sutta because, it is said, they are states too subtle for their constituent factors to be used as objects of insight contemplation. So this is a really interesting, uh, interesting point, so that even up to the, these uh, very high levels of, of absorption, say the realm of infinite consciousness, the infinite space, or realm of nothingness, still the reflective mind can come in and, and consider, well this is the realm of infinite space, or this is the realm of infinite consciousness, well, this is conditioned and volitionally produced. So, um, this, is, whatever is conditioned, is, uh, subject to, um, is impermanent and subject to, to cessation. So that that reflective thought can even be brought in at those very, very profound levels of, of absorption. And uh, but the the level of, of refinement is is so acute at those sort of top two levels of, neither perception or non- non-perception and neurotic that the that that sort of kind of beyond the limit, that the reflective um, uh, mind, the um, investigation, Dhamma Vijaya, or Yoniso Manasikara, it's, it's too subtle to, to apply there, it's, it's too refined. But below that, and these other uh, levels of absorption, the, um, uh, that uh, quality of uh, wise reflection and investigation can be, can be applied. After each one of these paragraphs, the venerable Ananda, who is expounding this discourse, says, "This too is one thing proclaimed by the Blessed One, wherein, if a bhikkhu abides diligent, ardent, and resolute, he attains supreme security from bondage that he has not attained before." So I'll pause there. There's uh, before the next sutta, uh, and there's any. Questions, thoughts, reflections?
1: Um, yes, I don't, um, um So, uh, if I understand it right, if uh, someone reaches the first channel and he has a reflective thought <laughs> of these conditions, um, he can uh, abandon the craving, or the craving doesn't arise. What if there is no reflective thought? Um, well, then... The
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, the craving uh, then basically stops... Uh, you have a craving for a wholesome state, mm-hmm. I presume, and then because of that, you cannot
0: get into a wholesome state because your mind latches onto how. Well, it's not necessarily a craving. I mean, it can be that that because one one of the things with the with jhana uh, and the brahma-viharas is they're very wholesome states. They're bright. They're wholesome states. They they are. Um, uh, uh, But they're not necessarily aligned with wisdom, so the mind can absorb into, uh, say, into the jhanas, and not be applying that quality of wisdom. And that's one of the the sort of classic um, issues in meditation practice is when someone becomes very skilled at concentration. They can develop a very very powerful. Uh, ability to focus and to stay in states of, that are very blissful and uh, and comfortable, delightful for hours and hours and hours, or even days sometimes. Um, but um, there doesn't there's not necessarily any any wisdom, and that the um, the the mind can actually become addicted to those beautiful, blissful states, and not realize the degree of attachment to them, uh, so that. This, this is a particularly significant sutta, as I included it here, uh, because it's, um, it's uh, uh, not just talking about the development of jhana, but also jhana with, a, with that uh, perspective on So there can be a wholesome intent, and the, the idea, well, I'm, I want to develop concentration for the purpose of, of liberation and purification of heart, I can have that intention, but that's, if that's not really being followed through with wisdom, then you can get very, very adept at Concentrated states, and um, and make it very easy for the mind to, to dwell in those, but still not, not for there not to be the wisdom for, of uh, of seeing into anatta. Say for example, so there are, uh, a couple of uh, of uh venerable Ajahn Mun's most well known disciples. Uh, so Ajahn Tate was so uh, gifted at going into arupa jhana that he actually couldn't stop himself. He said it took him about 12 years, if you read his little autobiography, uh, it says it took him about 12 years to learn how to not get into jhana as soon as he sat down and closed his eyes. So he had to kind of school himself to not, not kind of go sliding into that. And another story that is often told about Ajahn Mahabur was because when he was a young monk, uh, the, way the, the the style of practice they had in those days was that uh, they didn't have a a, um, uh, very many established monasteries. They'd go and live with Ajahn Man in some kind of particular little forest or they'd camp out together for a few months and then move on. They didn't have such established places. And then people would go out and practice on their own and then try and track the Ajahn down again and spend a few months with him or a few days, a few weeks and then go off and practice by themselves. So at a certain point, the young Ajahn Mahabua had gone off to practice by himself and had, with great uh, ardor and and um, commitment, and diligence, had managed to develop these very very profound states of absorption, and he was quite pleased with himself. You know, he was, he'd been a scholar monk and hadn't done much meditation before, and uh, but through sheer effort and and skill, he'd managed to develop these very bright states. So he went back to Ajahn Man and and, uh, and Ajahn Man asked him so so. Maha, you know, how's it going? And uh, he said, oh, well, actually, <coughs> no you mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> well, med- meditation has been quite fruitful, you know. And then he described what he was experiencing. And Ajahn Man said, well, don't bother with that. You know, that's that's not going to be a, a, any use to you. Uh, rather, you should just uh, limit your de- degree of concentration to, to access concentration so you can... Uh, keep the mind stable enough just to watch the rising and passing away of the five kandas, to Don't bother getting into absorption, that's not going to be useful for you. And famously the young Ajahn Mahabur argued. He disagreed with the Ajahn and they kind of went at it. And uh, he, he was, wouldn't agree that the teacher was right. And so that he, all these years, decades later, they, they still talk about that. that they can, you know, the other monks are like, I can't believe he's... <laughs> this young mahar is arguing with, with Tanajan. You know. You know, go and hide. Go, kind of sweep them, <laughs> sweep the sala, or you know, the, the, go and meet a cobra or something. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they, they went head to head, and um, anyway, Ajahn Mahabur uh, they sort of finished the argument, and Ajahn Mahabur was convinced that the teacher was wrong, and that uh, he couldn't see how any, how these states could be unwholesome or, or unhelpful because they were so good. And then, of course, he went off to practice by himself and couldn't get into those states anymore. There was this lingering feeling of the the arguing with the teacher and this sort of, uh, anyway, whatever. There was certain uh, residual effects of that um, encounter, and and he said that uh, um, no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get into those states of absorption at that time. And uh, he he made the comment that if it had been anybody else other than Ajahn Man who had prevented him from uh, experiencing those states, he would have killed them. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a really interesting comment, because even though they're extremely wholesome states, it's a really good example of of why they're unsatisfactory, because then having been denied them or deprived of them, then he's ready to kill (laughs) another human being. That, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a he's quite sort of a, he can be a little bit hyperbolic in the kind of express over you know exaggerated in his expressions, but you can you can get the sense that he really meant it. That if it, he said if it had been anybody else, he would have killed them. Like that prevented him from having those those, uh, those states, so that the sense of suffering and loss was was intense. So that um, that. Uh, the, the danger of, of um, the mind, when, if, there, if one does have a great skill in meditation, then the, the danger is, is just uh, spending the time kind of in a sunbathing, just sort of enjoying the, the bliss of, uh, and the comfort of it. And Ajahn Chah was particularly good at, at not letting people, or he saw people were sort of just spacing out or getting absorbed in that, then he'd make sure that you were you know, on the next building the the uh, on the next building team or, or um, that uh he keep you busy being his attendant, something like that. <laughs> so he's
1: uh a little bit slowly. I don't know how this follows, but maybe hard to follow a little bit slowly when the
0: William he's very quickly it's it's so hard. Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. But my subjective experience of time mm. is often different from the objective experience. So if I think I'm reading, I, th- I might think I'm reading slowly, but from the outside it, it, uh, it sounds like I'm reading fast. <laughs> so I'll do it even more, slowly. Well,
1: Jan, can I ask a question? It something yes. that always puzzles me, and i probably found the once a few times. But why does um, uh, the experience of things being momentary, so earth, death, and all these sorts of things, imply that nothing has existence even for a moment. Where does that come? Because it's a very different thing to say. And,
0: um, well, if you if you break it down, how long is a moment? You see, so that the, it's like that. If uh, if you're reflecting on everything in a state of change, then that the, um, the, well, no matter how small of an increment of time, even within the tiniest increment of time, things a thing is, is still continually changing. Sure, but then the,
1: the actual energy is for things to come together, not to fall apart, because they're falling apart anyway. And things do last through time, so. I never quite understand it, so there's always something I'm missing. You know, so like what, it, what it takes to keep your glass together, for mm-hmm. example, is, is something, mm-hmm. to keep it together, otherwise it would fall apart. Yes. You know, because it is changing. Mm-hmm. So, to me there is something which I really don't quite get. Um, when people, you know, make that leap from... Um, your, your, own, you know, your own perception of things, mm-hmm. experiences of things changing. Mm-hmm. And you can um, observe that, you can reflect on it, you can introspect on that, and, it's, and it has you know, many levels of refinement. But, um, but then to sort of make a statement that nothing endures not even for a moment,
0: well, said so that I, mean, I mean, in a sense, it's not maybe not endures, but everything is in a state of of change. So, like even the 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 molecules, atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks that that make up the glass. We much talked about glass. That they are in a constant state of vibration. They they are in a, a the. The, uh, the constituent elements are in a constant state of change. The whole package holds together um, just through the, the, the laws of physics and chemistry for uh, certain spans of time. And, you know, it, it, uh, an object, <coughs> like Newton's laws of an object continues in rest or motion until acted on by an outside force. Mm-hmm. But the, we either the things that are making, making it up, that they never stop being in a state of change. Even things that last a really long time, like a proton. It's still a, a, an impermanent aspect of the material world. But
1: is, is the Buddha actually talking about those kinds of things? Is he actually talking about the physical world, the world of objects? Is he really talking
0: about the world of experience? I think he's talking about both. But um, I mean, the, when he talks about the world, he's talking about the world of experience. Uh, and uh, you know, also these are sort of later commentators sort of going into the, uh, the minutiae of it so that um, you don't get the Buddha defining Sankara say in exactly the same kind of ways it's more like the, the commentators have said well actually if you, look, <laughs> if you go into the detail on it so the Buddha tends to be looking much more at, like say what is the world that in the world whereby one is a perceiver of the world a conceiver of the world that is called the world so the eye is the world. The vision is the world, eye consciousness. Eye contact is is the world. So that that and then within the pro, the perceptual process, then you can see not, there's no aspect of the perceptual process that 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 uh, stays still. There's a, a kind of um, you can describe a region of the perceptual <coughs> process, saying you know that is the table, that is just the desire, that's the carpet, you know that. That's describing a, 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 a region of, of a particular kind of activity within the, say, the, the visual field. But as long as that, as that as long, the way I, I understand it is that as long as that's recognized as an approximation, as a convenient fiction, then there's, there's no dukkha. As soon as, you, as soon as the mind says, no, that is, it gives that definition, then that's where the dukkha ar- arises, and that's the. Um, that uh, to me, that's the, that's a significant thing. I don't know if that's meeting your question or passing it by. No,
1: it a way, because it, 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 it is a different. It's almost like a different realm, isn't it? If you if you're looking at your own. Um, your own experience, your own perceptions, and you. Um, they're seeing well. They fall apart. They're not. They're not <coughs> substantial in the sense that you, know, you can make an absolute statement about anything. This is like this. <laughs> it's just not possible. Um, it kind of works, and it kind of goes this way,
0: but you never really know. Yeah, and that's uh, the the next passage. One of the next passages that we quote. for well, actually, um that, uh, uh, sorry, the, not the next, the earlier passages that were quoted. quoted, uh, no, uh, for no matter what it conceives, the fact is ever other than that. So I didn't dwell on it at that point, but um, that is one of the most useful statements in the whole Pali canon. Yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati Whatever you conceive it to be, the fact is other than that. So whatever the mind conceives, it says... Today is Monday, or uh, this is a reading. It's a, it's a, um, it's only a partial representation. Whatever yena yena himanyanti, whatever the mind conceives, tatathangholy anyatati, the the fact is always other than that. So that the the conceiving mind, uh, its job is to help living beings to get around in the world, to interact with each other, and to stay fed and Dry and so forth to flourish <coughs> but it, 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 as long as it it is able to know that those are approximations and that uh, then there's no dukkha as soon as it, <coughs> as soon as it says no, this is uh, you know, and, and it creates that uh, I, I am this person i this is this uh, this is amravati uh, that can only be part of the story. It can only be an approximation. So I feel this is, this is a little passage I've, I've reflected on a huge amount. And it's, it's very simple, but it's talking about that whole sort of conceiving, that manjati, that the, the way the mind makes a thing, makes a self or makes a, a place or a judgment or a, an object or a, um, a, a, any, anything mental or physical, that conceiving, that manyati, that determining, and that uh, um, whatever you conceive it to be, the fact is always other than that. <laughs> you, it, it's, the picture's bigger. There's more dimensions than, than the thinking mind can encompass. And so that uh, it's a very simple statement. But it, uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's a, a way of that, that same kind of reflection of Lumpur Chah. like, so? <laughs> the, the, the picture's bigger than that. There's more things playing into it. And that we the dukkha, is is the seed of dukkha is that that kind of defining like that's a bad thing I have to get away from it that's a good thing I want to get it yeah I need to have that to be complete I need to get rid of that to be purified so I recommend memorizing yena yena himanyanti tato hoti anyatati yes that's true.
1: How does the collective mind lead to liberation? When that, again, is against the thinking aspect of the mind
0: that is so sort of conceiving. Well, the Buddha used this wonderful analogy, one of his many, many wonderful analogies. He says it's like using a thorn to dig out another thorn. Like if you trodden on a thorn, and you ow, so but the you haven't got a needle, so you get another thorn and you dig out the one you just trodden on with, a, with another thorn. So you're using thought uh, to help develop a perspective on the nature of, of thinking. You're using a condition to help get a perspective, to, to catalyze the wisdom mind to get uh, a, a true perspective on the nature of, of thinking. And that's one of the most amazing things about, like I was saying about the, sort of the miracle of instruction. You're using conventions, conditioned things, to help the mind to awaken to the unconditioned, it's a miracle. So
1: the wisdom mind is not the thinking mind
0: at all. That much deeper than that. Absolutely yes. Yeah. Because that's uh, the quali- in terms of, of the 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 use of the word panya in in Buddhist psychology. That's not. It can mean intelligence. Panya like mean this panya paramita is. Uh, it's like, it's like what we think of as IQ, like intelligence, but more usually the word panya is referring to a, a non-verbal understanding, a non-conceptual uh, a- apprehension, uh, an understanding of the way things are. So it's um, it's not just a, a conceptual understanding, but rather a way of seeing. You know, seeing things in their true light, as it said, so that the, um, the this kind of uh, reflective thought uh, and and if, when you you read or uh, study Ajahn Chah's teachings, you realize that he refers to this kind of inner reflection a lot, and, and it's very much in the way that. Uh, Uposamedha would teach, or I teach, or many of the other ajans in this community are are teaching, is that you're using that kind of active reflection, just like uh, Venerable Ananda describes in that sutta. Now this is conditioned and volitionally produced. Uh, uh, So standing, uh, as it says, standing upon that. This first jhana is conditioned and volitionally produced. Whatever his condition and volition he produces impermanent, subject to cessation. Standing upon that, he attains the destruction of the asavas." So it's like that that reflection. Then, go, oh right, of course, this is just a condition. Aha! So it's like a, a that's the thorn that's digging out that that uh, the thorn of of taking it to be something substantial or real or owned by a, an I. <laughs> just keep going just keep swimming as it says in uh, what's it the Nemo. Nemo, Finding Nemo just keep swimming <laughs> just keep swimming it's the, the, uh, the mantra of, um, of uh, uh, Dory the little blue, uh, Nemo's little blue friend just keep swimming
1: <laughs> isn't it sometimes when we get in the way could it be that there's a state leaving and the thinking in mind is Somehow preventing you from a realization. Oh, yes. you <laughs> know, thinking what seems to be wise thoughts, they might be stopping you from
0: Indeed so. Uh, so. How do you, you just have to just... You stay close to wise people. <laughs> <laughs> that's where Kalyana Mita... Seriously. No, seriously, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Because that's where Kalyana Mita comes in where spiritual friendship comes in. Because greed and hatred are really easy to see. They're very toxic and and, and unwholesome, but they're kind of highlighted, underlined three times in red, like, want, good, yes, more. Like, bad, get out of here. Wrong, hate. That's pretty simple to see. But moha, delusion is very difficult to see because the very way that you would see it is obstructed by the moha. It's foggy, blurry. That's the nature of delusion. And, and that's how delusion works, it's deluding. <laughs> so it's, uh, of the three um, unskillful roots, the akusala mula, then moha is the most tricky. The others that can be strong and, and very obstructive for sure but Moha is the hardest to work with, and it's it's interesting um, that uh, Lumpur Panyananda, who used to come and teach here in the um, in the eighties and nineties, he he used to teach a lot. He's a, an elder Thai monk. He used to teach in prisons a lot in in Thailand. He said, "Murderers are easy to teach. Yeah. Thieves and mur- murderers, they're they're really receptive, particularly people who killed because usually." It's just in a moment of, of ang- anger, they've lashed out and killed someone, and they feel a lot of regret. He says, people are frauds and cheats, it's impossible. <laughs> and he had this, uh, he's very cool, he, he didn't have a very expressive face, so he had this sort of one sort of permanently benign expression on his face, but when he said that he was sort of <laughs> <laughs> like you could, you could almost feel how much he tried <laughs> you know, hours and hours and hours of working with, with people uh, but people who kind of had lied to themselves lied to others so much they just couldn't tell what was true anymore so Kalyanamita is the best way of this is my, my take on it is in terms of dealing with deluded states is uh, talking to your friends and say well it looks like this to me how does that sound to you? <laughs> well, I'm trying to work with this. How, you know, have you had the same experience, or how does that work for you? And getting feedback from from your your friends or your a skillful uh, te- and the people who have some experience or some knowledge, and, and then using that feedback and that input from from your um, your peers and and, and more ex- other experienced people. It's really the the best way of, of getting a perspective. Because oftentimes, uh, like with this, this how it takes shape in my mind, is that it's not, it doesn't need a lot. It's just that when the mind, uh, it's not like a huge effort, but it's a particular effort. You see what I mean? Like, like, oh, this is just another conditioned thing. Oh, that's my mind saying I I want that, and it's saying if I got that, I'd be happy. Oh. And. It, one little reflection like that, like, oh, I'm suffering because I'm, I'm having to work with that person. And I'm thinking, if only he was different, I would be happy. Oh, association with the disliked is dukkha. Duh! <laughs> and then, you know, six weeks of anguish is solved in three and a half seconds. It's like, oh, I must, there's association with the disliked, therefore dukkha. Oh, right. It's just things are f- functioning according to the formula. <laughs> And so, it's a, I liken it to like putting a, a, the right key into a lock. You know, If you have the right key and you put it in the lock, you can easily get through a door. It's not a, it doesn't take a sort of huge muscular effort. It's not complicated. Sorry, it's come and go doesn't
1: seem to lead to necessary, I suppose... Well, if
0: you pay attention, if you do apply that, little, that kind of insight, just if in that moment, rather than sort of racing on to the next thing, if you apply that kind of insight, like, oh, I just don't want it to be this way, huh? <laughs> then just notice in that moment what happens in your heart. Say, oh, I'm. Asso- this is association with the disliked, so there's dukkha, or, or separation from the liked, therefore dukkha. Oh, right. Just to pay, bring attention to that, oh, right. Because if you gloss over that, then you're never t- tasting all the fruits that you're, that you're cultivating. But if you just say, let, them, you know, let, let the mind take a moment to appreciate that. Oh, look, look at that, ha! Huh. Just to, to not be getting on to the next problem, you know, too quickly. <laughs> but just let yourself feel that when the, when the mind has those little aha moments. Just let that be f- as fully known as possible. As a, but as I said, I think the, uh, um, uh, with, with deluded states and with uh, getting lost in perceptions, then often it's through the skillful feedback of, of mentors and, and, and spiritual friends that we, helps us get a perspective on that. When your, your friends look at you and go, Really, James? Why are you upset about that? or like... Oh come on james yeah you know, that's fine you're, yeah, actually, you're right. <laughs> Why am I worrying about that that's fine <sighs> so but our, our our tendency is to not notice the ending of suffering. We get busy with the next problem, you know it's like that, that kind of experience where you've been you're working on some sort of task and you've been you know hoovering the carpet or tidying or you know, washing the sinks or doing the laundry, and you go. Ah, thank goodness, that's done. And you have about three seconds of satisfaction. Ah, great. You have like one out breath, and then you start to look for the next problem. (laughs) I should be worrying about something. And there's this kind of interesting dynamic I see, uh, in my mind, where there's a disquiet. You're looking for the next problem, and you think, oh, right, I should be. There's those 16 emails I have to reply to. And something is actually happy to have another thing to worry about <laughs> we're looking for a, an object but if you don't follow that but just let yourself fully know that kind of then it uh, that that in a way that's like the the realization of dukkha niroda so just to let that ending of that that particular dukkha be cognized because Dukkani roda Sachikata banti, it needs to be realized. Otherwise we just gloss over it, it just seems like nothing. It is is no thing. So the mind that's addicted to things glosses over it. It misses it, because it seems like nothing. It is no thing, and so it ignores it. But if the the mind just stops, it says, okay, here is the mind free of grasping. How does this feel? Oh, very nice. <laughs> so now, free of grasping at time and such like, it's gone past 7:10, so let's uh, wind up there. Didn't get on quite as far as I'd hoped to today, but uh, that's life.